to save the day. He never gives up, he's always there, fighting for freedom over land and air. G.I. is the code name for America's daring, highly trained special mission force. Its purpose, to defend human freedom against COBRA, a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. He never gives up, he'll stay till the fight's won. G.I. Joe will dare. G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe. This is episode 70 of G.I. Joeberg. Coming to you on the 15th of September, 2016, which means it's the 30th anniversary of Arise, so Pentor Arise. My name is Stephen. As always, I'm joined by my faithful companions, Paul Robert. Special Missions Cujo, at your service. <laughs> and September, as uh, has become our tradition, is devoted to the Sunbow cartoon, this marks the third and final miniseries, the 1986 Season 2 G.I. Joe animated series five-part season opener, Arise of Pentor Arise. And this one, I gotta admit, I'm a little bit excited to get into. How about you guys? I am super keen on this. A Sunbow lover and a fan of these miniseries. And this one in particular has some, well, like all of the miniseries, they all have something to offer, but this one has something really special to offer. Yeah, like a new writer. (laughs) (laughs) Story was handled by Buzz Dixon for these five episodes, and that is a marked departure from the usual suspect, that being Ron Friedman. I feel like it's worth mentioning that we're not the only G.I. Joe podcast covering this particular G.I. Joe arc right now. So if you can't get enough of Serpentor Arise, go looking at... Knowing is half the podcast. That's right. They're talking about it too. So if you want more of that. Mm-hmm. But for a nice. decidedly third world slant, you've come to the right place. This is G.I. Joburg, broadcasting from Johannesburg, South Africa. <laughs> but you already knew that, right? Right? Guys, we have our usual definitive sculpt segment but because of the content of this episode, that being part one of Arise, Serpentor Arise, we're going to go with a character featured quite prominently in the miniseries, and it's going to be Sergeant Slaughter. Appropriate. I'm going to kick mm-hmm. off by saying, while version one of Sergeant Slaughter has got some fine details, I mean, the chevrons on his boots, the G.I. Joe stripe up his pants, the USA on his chest... The dog tags, the tiny little baton, it's a beautiful figure, but it looks like a wrestler to me. I don't think he wants you to call his baton tiny. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> well, it's an adequate baton <laughs> with a little splash of gold paint for the tip. Uh, <laughs> guys, jeez. I am going to say version 3 for two reasons. I like my Sergeant Slaughter practical enough to integrate well with the G.I. Joes that I already have, and that version does so immaculately. Big knife on his chest, bullet belt, he's looking like he's wearing some kind of armor, he's got the cut-off gloves, he looks less like he's going to jump into the ring, and more like he's going to you know, pick up a machine gun and shout for other Joes to follow him into the front lines. So that version 
has always been a true representation of what a soldier on the battlefield would look like as opposed to a wrestler stepping into the wrestling ring. I know I'm going to step on a lot of wrestling fans' toes by listing that, but that's my criteria. The other reason, he came with the most kick-ass G.I. Joe vehicle I'd ever owned as a child, and that's the Warthog AFIV, which is the perfect chariot for a Marine. I mean, it's an amphibious landing craft. I'm sold. Yeah. And the fact that the Sarge has a removable hat, even better. So that's me, gents. I actually like version 2. I think he's a great-looking figure. I far prefer the the non-USA madness emblazoned all over his body. But he's still wearing a tank top. Yeah, but it's more practical. It, it looks more drill sergeant-ish. I take him more seriously there. But I have to say, my personal favorite has got to be V3. Why? Because I have some personal connections with this figure. When I got the Warthog, this was the first time I'd ever gotten a driver with a vehicle, like a free Joe with my vehicle kind of thing. That's always made uh, this Sergeant Slaughter fairly special to me. And back then, I knew him as Sergeant Slammer, something that seems to be omitted on Yojo's database as a variant. But yeah, he's known as Sergeant Slammer in um, the non-American part of the world. I also love the bullet belt, the knife. All of that stuff really does make him look combat-ready. The backstory to this is always that, oh, he was a real guy. And David and I never knew he was a wrestler. So we were always like, oh, cool, maybe he's like a real drill instructor or something. Which gave the figure a bit more pathos, you know, like it gave it something. And uh, yeah, he's always been special to me in that regard. I'd actually like to get this figure in my collection again, because he's great. That would be my definitive sculpt. Rob, you mind if I step into this one? Yeah, please do. Step into the ring, as it were. Nice. Can you beat the tide of popular opinion? <laughs> you guys went with V3? Bingo. Yeah, that's that, the brown the, one. That's pumpkin spice slaughter right there. That's not going to work, gentlemen. <laughs> I take it we have a wrestling fan in our midst. No, I didn't even like Slaughter in the ring. He's telling the company line too much for me. But I do have some memories of the V1 figure. The rubber band snapped, and we put his his legs on Storm Shadow's torso. So I, I remember even back then that he was one of the most conflicted characters that ever existed because his legs were Joe, but his uh, his heart was Cobra. So, I mean, even back then, I, I remember Slaughter's thighs. I like that V1 just because of those thighs. So, I, I don't care for Slaughter too much as a person, but those were some good thighs. I like it. Right on. We <laughs> failed to address uh, the topic of thighs in our 69th episode, focusing more on heads and crotches. But, uh, yeah, those are some choice thighs. As I say, I mean, the, the paint detail is phenomenal. Yep. Uh, he was truly a, a special figure, and I mean, you'd expect him to be special. He was a mail-away figure, and also kind of celebrating uh, a, a, a weird breaking of the fourth wall. Like, this was a real person, uh, a celebrity action figure. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly had a kind of a, a majesty to it. It felt like a special thing. But I want a Joe that looks cool driving the warthog, and realistic for that matter. Anyway, Rob... Can you also spice up our, our uh, selections here? Is it V1 or is it V3? <laughs> or is it something completely off the wall? No, um, Vision 3 is worth mentioning because he comes with the Warthog. But I think that's why you guys have been blinded. You're like, I love the Warthog. <laughs> by, by, by extension, I love this version of Slaughter the, the best. i got to take it back to the 1985 original. He captures the wrestler roots of Sergeant Slaughter as well as his unwavering patriotism perfectly. 
got a little whistle around his neck. He's got that little baton accessory, his USA shirt. And the coolest thing about him is he has those like black, black gloves, which I think is like excellent. And I mean, he's a, he's a drill instructor. That figure looks like a drill instructor. I think like the further away you get from the, from the first version, and I suppose a little bit the second kind of the, the knife force version, the further away you get from that, the more he looks like a soldier. Slaughter's Marauders version, you mean? Mm. Yes. Well, well, that one, Slaughter's Marauders, when he has the blue shirt. Mm. But then the, I think version two was with the black shirt. I've got to say, I hate. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it just <laughs> yeah. looks generic. But like the further you get away from version one, the more he looks like a soldier. Then you come to like 2006 when he comes in a, in a, um, in a box set. And he's got the, the bullet belt. He's got a grenade on his, his shoulder, which I mean, I suppose is appropriate if you've watched Arise or Bento Arise, especially the second episode. <laughs> but <laughs> this version, the original version, captures him perfectly. Did we ever get to see Slaughter versus Big Boa in any medium? Alas, no. Big Boa That's being in 1980s. Shame. Well, uh, hey, maybe it happened in a in a in a comic book. Maybe one of the like 3D comic books. I mean, I remember the 1987 Joes being quite prominent in those those comics, but I don't I don't own any of them. They were the ones where you had a, a red and a blue lens, sort of viewing glasses. I got those around somewhere. <laughs> yeah, we should check one day. <laughs> I just remember like like it featuring like the, the 1987 Cobras quite prominently. Like uh, Raptor was on the cover, I believe. Maybe the Sarge pitted himself up against Boa, but. Uh, yeah, I, I speak under no authority on that. So no, missed opportunity, eh, Kujo? But something that, that is great about Sergeant Slaughter throughout all of his um, sculpts, because obviously they use the same head, but that guy has got one hell of a they chin. Don't. That... No, they don't. Don't uh, they? V, it looks V3 kind of has the, the Well, V3 has the removable hat. Well, what I wanted to get at there, I mean, aside from the hat, the hat is the hat, but I love that snore, that, that moustache, and I love that like giant chin. <laughs> I didn't know what a drill instructor was until I read uh, Sergeant Slaughter's file card. Don't uh, don't let Beachhead hear you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm gonna back you up on that, Paul, because since I wasn't a follower of WWF at all, I had no handle on the guy's character. But the file card that came with that version three was so vividly written that I had no trouble imagining exactly what his role was in the GI Joe team. So like. Before I even heard Robert Remus speak, like my Sergeant Slammer <laughs> spoke with that same gravelly, like drill instructor shout. Yeah, um, exactly. Perhaps in the same vein as uh, uh, what's his name, Emery from uh, Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> well, Full Metal Jacket. I was going to say the same thing because we all watched that when we weren't supposed to, you know. I know, right? <laughs> it left a huge impression, and that kind of also just added to the mosaic that was Sergeant Slammer. <laughs> but for the first time, I think, in our definitive sculpt section, we are split right down the middle. So somewhere between version 1 and version 3, there is the ultimate Sergeant Slammer, or Sergeant Slaughter, I should say. Let us know what you think, G.I. Joburg fans. We're always very interested to hear from you, especially when it comes to tiebreakers and telling us which is the ultimate Sergeant Slaughter. But gentlemen, Arise of Pinto Arise, airing this date in 1986, this marks its 30th anniversary, and tonight we are discussing part one. Wikipedia gives us the following breakdown 
After being inspired by a strange dream, the fiendish Dr. Mindbender plans to obtain the DNA samples of history's greatest conquerors in order to make the Cobra Emperor. The Joes embark on a mini-remedial recruit training and intercept and destroy a Cobra Night Raven, retrieving a Cobra message pod. The Joes find a letter detailing the Dreadnought's mission to break into the tombs of history's greatest leaders and conquerors. Meanwhile, the Dreadnoughts gain Monkey Wrench and Thrasher as new members. The story was by Buzz Dixon and the teleplay by Ron Friedman. Does anyone have any idea what teleplay is? What is the distinction? I suppose Buzz was responsible for the plotting and Ron wrote out the dialogue? A teleplay, um, I think in television terms, that's basically the screenplay. So, so Buzz came up with the idea, hey, let's introduce Serpentor in the 1986 Joes to the cartoon. And then Ron went away and wrote a screenplay based on that, that story concept. Well, I have to admit that this combination of creative minds seems less offensive to me than Ron Friedman just running amok. Yeah, because we don't have so. exactly we I mean this is gonna be my favorite element of of part one that I'm just gonna give away the game right off the bat, but it places very little reliance on external factors. Everything that happens in this episode you can play out with your nineteen eighty six team of Joes and Cobras and their vehicles and equipment. Whereas Ron Friedman was throwing in so many fantastical elements that he just sort of like pulled out of his ass that it, it while the characters will always be G.I. Joes, these other elements kind of divorce it from the stuff that we love the most and like make it pretty much like any other generic cartoon where you're fighting robotopuses or water robots or gigantic snake robots i mean you know the gimmicks were cliched and (laughs) and a bit tired well it's now more an advert for the toys than it has been before which ironically i endorse wholeheartedly i'm like give me the toys i want to see the toys in action and only the toys don't show me other shit how do you guys feel about that i don't necessarily agree with those words but we can get to that in due course no let's have it out come on cooge you don't enjoy seeing all the products being showcased and shown off to their full capabilities. You'd rather watch a, a cartoon that, that involves things that you can't buy on the toy shelf. No, I'm not saying that. Uh, but I don't like characters out of their element just for the sake of showcasing them. Uh, mainframe, hanging around, pyramids and whatnot. Uh, you're getting ahead of yourself, sir. In this episode specifically, Mainframe is playing video games. I, I get where Steve's coming from because... There, there is sort of a disconnect when you've got all of these elements in a in an animated series that will never become toys or will never become things that you get your hands on, you know, like, you know, Steve said, Robotopuses and stuff, but then also characters like Dr. Metier and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, characters and that, that robot thing from, you know, that protects Cobra. And then there was just a lot of stuff that was just inaccessible and you had to kind of fill that in with your ROM Space Knight and your Micronauts figures and, you know, mask figures or whatever. It frustrates me as a G.I. Joe fan to watch a 23-minute cartoon and have to endure things that aren't G.I. Joe or Cobra. That's, I think, the the point that I'm trying to make. Like, I'd rather watch a 23-minute 
toy commercial because these are the toys that I love. Like, this is what I want to see. Not, you know, the, the flights of fancy of a writer who's just kind of like, mm, you know, villain of the week or MacGuffin of the week or... <laughs> and this part one has nothing like that in it. And the thing is with G.I. Joe, you know, it, this is not like the Ghostbusters cartoon where Ghostbusters cartoon relied so much on 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 introducing weird and outlandish elements that weren't going to be a toy because when that series was being structured yes toys were part of that because obviously the market but you know the story writing was quite on top uh with gi joe the difference is is that you have this vast library of figurines that are available in the market you got tons of kids playing with all of these toys why not put them in the show it's kind of stupid to admit that and I side on the 30-minute toy commercial approach because I, too, like seeing an animated Night Raven on screen. I also love seeing the Thunder Machine animated in, in all of its glory on screen. Yeah, it gives me fanboy goosebumps. <laughs> Good. But I'm glad you mentioned the Ghostbusters because I will argue that the downfall of the Ghostbusters toy line and therefore cartoon was the lack of compelling bad guys. You just had a bunch of, like, colorful ghosts creatures no villain that you'd see on a week-to-week basis like no recurring main villain you see the thing is with ghostbusters i only found this out later because i did some research and then obviously on the dvd box sets they've got these little making offs like you said a lot of the villains in ghostbusters can be fairly random but the recurring stuff like sam hain and all of those characters were actually deemed by marketing guys as too scary for kids because they had too many ties to real things i mean there's a Cthulhu, uh, or should I say a Tulu episode in Ghostbusters. I mean, none of that stuff, the cultists, none of that stuff was ever made as a toy because it was never considered viable for the market. There's very little about that show to make it commercial. I mean, aside from the fact that it lasted six seasons, seven seasons, I know exactly where you're coming from. And I mean, why not have the stuff that we play with on an animated series? Why not put the stuff we see on a show in our bedrooms, you know, and get us excited about it? I think it's great. And I think another thing that this uh, miniseries does, and it does it in quite a cool manner, especially if you've seen the movie, there's a lot of nods. There's a lot of uh, sort of foreshadowing for the G.I. Joe movie that's coming out. Aside from just being the opening act for season two, it is also the primer for the movie. It introduces this villain. It shows us a different side of what's going on in Cobra, what's going on with the Joes. Uh, why we need new Joes. It's kind of weird. It, it fills in these little blanks that we didn't really know were blanks until you watch the second season. You start going, oh, yeah, it actually makes sense that they had that character here now and, and things like that. At least it does to me. I think the first blow that could be struck is the opening credit sequence. This was something altogether new that kicked off the second season of G.I. Joe and would become the opening credit sequence for the entire 1986 final Sunbow series. And the recurring theme that I'm going to keep bringing in when we're discussing part one of Arise of Pen to Arise is that you're seeing a lot of toy hardware. We open with a shot, once again, it's Flint, and he's on the flag. It's the USS flag, is, is in our first establishing shot in this sequence. You have a new jet launching from its deck, the Conquest X-30. We see a shot of, well, it could be Cobra Island, 
but you see a Cobra bunker in the foreground, a Cobra pterodrome in the background. Okay, they extrapolated a little bit by putting a giant Cobra statue looming over it. But as far as I can tell, the only non-toy item that you can see in that entire opening sequence is the all-too-necessary landing barge, which deploys the ore strikers and uh, recon sleds and havocs that the Joes used to assault this island. But everything else, from the thunder machine, from the, the fire bats, trouble bubbles, it's all toy. You see a nice establishing shot of Dr. Mindbender. You see pretty much all the 1986 Joes and a few old favorites like Quick Kick, Bazooka, Alpine, all scaling the Cobra, Terradrome. And it's an almost low-key sequence. There's no gigantic Cobra airship looming in the horizon. It kind of harks back to the continued adventures of G.I. Joe, where they're having a battle at the docks. But there are no, almost practically no, non-toy elements in the entire opening sequence. And I'm, I'm in favor of that, <laughs> but that's no surprise. What do you say, Rob? Yeah, it's a cool opening sequence. But I mean, I, I feel kind of in a way that, that having everything be toy and no non-toy stuff almost kind of robs the the audience of um, imagination. Because then you end up, yes, you can play exactly what you've watched on the screen, but it's not inspiring you to think up your own things. I, I get where Rob's coming with that. There is a part of me, I mean, obviously the creative part of me like says, yeah, yeah, you're totally right. But the thing is, like, how many kids in 1986 had everything that was on the screen. Think about it that way. Like we had to improvise. We had to um, make things because we didn't know that the GI Joe HQ existed as a toy and all that kind of stuff, you know. And there was a lot of stuff we saw in catalogs that we would never see in person, at least not for another 25 or 20 years um, as collectors. So I think even though the show is very heavy-handed in like saying. Yes, this is everything, like Rob was saying, and it does rob the imagination. But in the same token, like once again, I don't think every kid had everything. And I think it was a matter of a lot of kids had to improvise and had to, to find ways around that. Maybe using their imaginations to create uh, terror drums because they couldn't convince their parents to get them one. Point taken, point taken. I mean, it, it is asking quite a lot for a kid to have the entire 1986 catalog of toys by the time Arise Serpento Arise debuted. But then again, not all of us have customizing expertise. So as an adult, I'm thrilled to see all of the toys and figures and vehicles that I've amassed being showcased. Anyway, I'm going to stop laboring this issue. We open with the Joes all on effectively R&R. They're playing baseball or video games or making modifications to a new vehicle called the Tomahawk. And we quickly see each and every single single carded and the vehicle drivers of the 1986 series, except for one. Can anyone tell me who they missed out? I want to say cover goal, but it's not cover goal. It's um... anybody else want to have a go? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Metalhead. Sorry. I mean, not Metalhead. What's his name? Heavy Metal. <laughs> From 1986. Is that in Heavy Metal come with the... <laughs> the correct answer is Iceberg. Iceberg gets no love in the opening sequence. Everyone else gets a at least a partial introduction. But Iceberg, we don't even see his face in this... Uh, for... Oh, we do see his face. Apologies. But he gets zero uh, introduction. You have Wetsuit and Leatherneck showcasing their attrition 
<laughs> their angst their toward one another, their marksmanship, and then being shown up by lowlights and sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, talking of sci-fi, what is the point of a laser specialist in a team where everyone shoots lasers? Well, has a laser, right? Exactly. And then they go and turn him into a freaking sniper. You know what I mean? They go and, he goes and perches on Notre Dame in a, in a sniping position. Meanwhile, Lowlight's running around like and doing what the fuck. I think you've just put your finger on it. What does a laser trooper do in a team that shoots lasers? He is a designated sniper. And Lowlight's being in a sort of a night setting plays into his night spots of specialties. So they try to keep some semblance of the, the primary military specialties uh, in the way that the figures were portrayed in the cartoon. But I'm getting ahead of myself. If they do, it's an accident. Because uh, these writers don't care about specialties. But sci-fi has, has uses. I mean, he probably creates the playlist for people that are going into battle. You know he's the coolest guy. You know he's the coolest guy. Hey, he was my first joke. I right. love stuff. I agree. Just and he's got a that. great voice actor. Wow. I think Sounds so, too. Sounds terrific. Mm. He probably has good connections, too. We get introduced to the Tomahawk, my favorite vehicle, lift ticket, and Lifeline refusing or objecting very uh, outspokenly to arming a rescue helicopter. So we already see his um, his ideology, which is going to become a recurring motif for the character. If you take his ideals to the extreme. He shouldn't even be on the G.I. Joe team, because why exactly. should he help patch people up who kill other people? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, a good it's point. contradictory. That is something that the cartoon is completely confused about with Lifeline. Like, basically, the role of Lifeline is that he says what he says enough times so that when you're watching it on a Saturday morning and you're eating your cereal, um, your mom or your dad hears somebody saying that a lot so that your mom and dad feel that the TV babysitter is not teaching you bad values. Lifeline is a vegan. No, no, let's not be negative about vegans. You know, we might have vegan listeners. And, you know, I'm not it's saying they're, they're right. negative, but they're very vocal about their beliefs. So people aren't really asking. Lifeline's just, oh, by the way, I don't hurt people. And they're like, oh, great, he thanks. Yeah, he's basically 1986's version of a crossfitting vegan. There you go. You got to yeah. have that personality. I don't know what happened to the Joes between season one and season two. I mean, I know that they've had some R&R, but damn, okay? Did they just do a lot of drugs and drink a lot and just completely lose the plot? Because you've got a Marine and a SEAL, and they can't shoot straight for shit. So I have to read between the lines here. They drunk as skunks, okay? You got Shipwreck. You know, Shipwreck is such a player. He is such a A-class goof-off that he's even goofing off on R&R. While everybody's playing baseball, he's sitting by the tree, just chilling the fuck out. Everybody is just pretty much confused. I mean, that whole situation when, when they open the door and, and Slipstream's kind of busted. When I saw it on the corner of my eye, I thought, okay, cool, yeah, he was obviously watching TV or something and they interrupted him. But then my adult brain kicked in and I'm like, they totally busted him checking out porn. Nah, he was watching the game, man. Yeah, he yes. was checking out the bats and balls and, you know, <laughs> some innings. And, you know, <laughs> Shipwreck was lamenting a lost glove, by the way, that you, you should yeah. gloss over that. No, I know. Yeah. I know. he was. But like somebody watching sport is like the kitty cartoon version of somebody watching porn. I'm sorry. They busted Slipstream <laughs> watching porn. I mean, why not? G.I. Joe, it's 1986. They probably got the best Internet in America, second to Cobra. 
Okay. And, uh, you and know, you this guy. Slip, Slipstream was the one, uh, watching things he shouldn't have been. I mean, it, it was dial tone and mainframe that were messing around with their joysticks. Let's not no, they, that. No, they were playing video games. That was, there was, there was nothing like, I mean, I can't write that one off. It's just the way Slipstream reacts. You know, he like quickly jumps up, like he's guilty, like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, like he's caught half wank or something. <laughs> you know? yeah, he, he pitched his tent. That's a nightmare that hits close to home to many people these days, brother. Careful. And what he has to say is pure gold. I just thought of such a guilty reaction. What do you guys think of Cobra's a newly created technology? And by this, I mean the bats, of course. I mean, how do you guys feel about bats? Uh, how do you guys feel about the introduction of the bats? I can tell you how Friedman feels about him. If you can give that writer any credit, he probably does know motifs. Dude, the bats pile out of a school bus. That That's his joking way of saying, like, uh, you go to school to become a robot. Yeah, it, is. it is. And, and Cobra Commander is, is boorish, as always. But I, I don't know. I, I didn't like this introduction for the bats because it didn't show them to be lethal. I do agree with you. I do feel that the introduction is a bit limp dick. It's like you don't get the Terminator feeling from the bats that you should get. Also, they all march very closely to each other. I get there's like some kind of zombie vibe to them, but it's just, you know, when they ultimately get taken down by Sergeant Slaughter, you know, he tackles them and they go down like a bunch of um, bowling pins. It's such a simple solution. And at this point, I actually think the Joes are taking the piss. I mean, you know, we've, we've gone through their blunders and how all of them are being busted doing something they shouldn't be doing. And then you've got Cobra attacking, dropping off these school buses and, and deploying these bats. And the Joes are surrounded and you've got laser fire going left, right and center. And the Joes are just emptying rounds into them. And all of a sudden, low lights and sci-fi can't shoot for shit now. And it's it's all very confusing. I, I don't know. I don't know if they're just high or what the fuck is going on. <laughs> and then the things they actually hit are the bats. And the bats are clearly invincible until... Sergeant Slaughter rocks up to tackle them and take them out and then swing them around like like they're nobody's business. I mean, obviously, the story here is, is that the Joes have gotten soft and sloppy and we need somebody hardcore. He actually uses his baton to smash them. I mean, he that's totally a little, does. It's a little, little stick. At least probably for the G.I. Joe series, that one shot of him swinging a bat around was probably the most animation done on one scene in, in G.I. Joe. Uh, just because it's that burly brawl effect. I don't know if you remember Matrix 2. When G.I. Joe strokes, they stroke too hard. Like, I don't like the introduction of Slaughter. They're like, really? He's taking on a bunch of... Fuck? Like, that... That I don't like that. The entire start of the episode is just to set up the introduction of Sergeant Slaughter. Because you're showing everyone being completely useless. Mm. And it's all just there so that you can introduce Sergeant Slaughter. Otherwise, there'd be no reason to have him in there. So that's the only logical way that they could figure out, okay, how are we going to introduce him? Oh, everyone's become useless. This is how we put him in there. It, it makes no sense. Why would they become like that? Why? Because Hawk is a terrible leader. Clearly. <laughs> Even he goes for a run. <laughs> yeah. Kucho, I think, yeah, you, you're right in pointing out that, that when Hasbro want to stroke something, they stroke really hard. But I think Slaughter was enough of a gimmick that needed showcasing that, yes, this entire episode effectively is gearing up to his introduction and then his his effect on the G.I. Joe team. 
because let's face it, he's going to become a very important part of this miniseries and the the entire second season of 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 GI Joe when you view it as a yeah. whole. Yeah, so it was a big deal, and as I said before, kind of broke the fourth wall, blurred the lines between reality and fiction. I'm sure they sold a lot of Sergeant Slaughter figures. I'm sure that mail away was sure very popular. Did. I'm pretty sure that this uh, that the scene was it was such that the figures came out possibly within a month leading up to the show, and I'm pretty sure kids were already like, oh wow, you know. You know, some of them were grabbing Sergeant Slaughter figures, or maybe they were getting involved in the mail away. So that when he appeared on the cartoon, I'm sure it was a major payoff for a lot of kids. I'm sure a lot of them were like, yay, Sergeant Slaughter's on the screen. And then they started banging their figures against each other's figures. And yeah. So I, I'm sure that Sergeant Slaughter's introduction had to have that kind of fanfare for it, you know, just for, for everything to kind of come together. Obviously, his introduction also pushes the rest of the episode forward, and everything else kind of comes from there. Because. Then we move on to the heads of Cobra, kind of this, like, oh, Cobra Commander, you failed again. But he wouldn't have failed if there hadn't been a Sergeant Slaughter. Yeah, this guy who comes out of nowhere. If, if there wasn't a Sergeant Slaughter, Cobra would have won in that moment. Totally. And In th- fact, and this- no, I'm just about to say, no wonder Cobra is pissed off with Cobra Commander. No wonder the uh, the scheme of Mindbender comes into play, because Cobra had G.I. Joe waxed. I mean... The fact that Duke and Hawk weren't dead after being freaking Mexican standoff by Cobra officers and bats and whatever else is beyond me. The fact that Cobra still retreats after one guy comes in and changes the whole game. I mean, it shows you that both sides are already weak and it creates a good setup, but carry on. But I mean, the thing is, it isn't even Cobra Commander's fault. I mean, how he couldn't anticipate the Deus Ex Machina of Sergeant Slaughter coming into the show. And that kind of brings us to um, the trippy dream that Dr. Mindbender has. I'm not, I'm not ready to get into Mindbender's dreams. It, was this the introduction for the stun? Correct. Yes, okay. that's correct. Did you guys have an but, opinion on that vehicle, just real briefly? Crap. Hawk summed it up really nicely when he's quoted as saying, Stuns, they're fast, but without the armor or the punch of the hiss tank. Yeah, that was nice context. But uh, you, you have to bow to the fact that it was released that year and therefore needed to be showcased. Also, fits nicely into a, the back of a uh, unfolding school bus. Yeah, for real. <laughs> uh, what uh, is that, G.I. Joe I mean, security up to anyway if they're allowing school kids onto a military base anyway? Exactly. Like, what? A story what? for another time. But but the thing is here as well, I mean, that highlights something that I kind of like in this miniseries um, is it's very uh, self-referential uh, and self-aware. Having Hawk say something like that is actually, it's it's quite a honest statement because that's how we feel now about stuns. I mean, it's not that, I imagine as kids, we might have actually enjoyed the stun, but now we're looking at that and we were like, what the fuck is that, actually? But kudos to the show for having a motor viper and, and having one or two stuns loaded with motor vipers and not just being driven by Cobra heavies. So that that was kind of cool. At least a vehicle driver was showcased um, in, a, in a mild way. And also, just quickly before we get to Mindbender's dream, Rob, because I want to hear your take on it. The introduction of Mindbender was quite cool, in a way. And I love the whole reading of his file card. Chief Interrogator. And Chief Science Officer. That's also, once again, it's self-referential. It's also setting 
it's also like referring to his file card. And we're like, okay, that's cool. Now we know why Mindbender is important. But Rob's going to tell us about Mindbender's dream and the double spiral of life, which is about to bring us into our quickfire topic, which is going to run across all five episodes of our podcast. Ooh, Paul's got a surprise for us. This was an awesome sequence. It felt very um, Kubrick-esque in, in a uh-huh. way. Like, so, sort of like a 2001 trip into the stars. It came out of nowhere. I mean, yes, you're praising this entire um, first episode for its groundedness and reality and the toys and stuff. And then you get this completely insane sequence where you have just these wonderful images of, you know, like numbers and signs and other things. And it's like everything in his mind is just laid bare. And you just see him like, no, Cobra Commander, don't destroy me. And Cobra Command is defeated, and he realizes Rob, what. You, you're not screaming that nearly loudly enough. No, Cobra Commander, please don't destroy me! <laughs> Mercy is the hallmark of greatness. <laughs> <laughs> what does what Cobra know about Mercy? Uh, I suppose they're, they're ridiculous plans that are They haven't killed anybody. Actually <laughs> That's true. They, they, they're the most merciful people on the planet. <laughs> Viva and this all brings <laughs> this all brings Mindbender to the realization that he has to make a new leader for for Cobra <laughs> because no one exists on the planet who can who can actually lead this this disparate organization of people. They're so desperate to be led. None of them are leaders. <laughs> They're all just very good followers. And what do you think of this this sequence, Kuta? Uh, well, it's definitely colorful. Um, but I I kind of feel like. Uh, much like Empire Strikes Back was uh, a metaphor for Han Solo's ED because he couldn't get the hyperdrive started all the whole movie. Um, I, I think this this arc is about Mindbender's uh, sexual identity. I think deep down he he's coming out gay. Cobra Commander's an old friend. It's hard to do that to friends. Um, so he has to create a new identity called Serpentor. Very Rocky Horror, I must say. Yeah. Cobra Commander is Eddie. Uh, Mindbender's first great love. I wouldn't put that past Friedman. Serpentor is is Rocky. Mindbender is Tim Curry. <laughs> is Frankenfurter. Kind of looks like a Frankenfurter given his getup. I'm just a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. <laughs> I don't know about that. Mindbender's reveal is pretty cool. At first, it's his finger that comes out of the darkness when you still see his silhouette. And then he's like, he comes out and he's completely ripped with no shirt on. Yeah, he's, he's trying to tell Cobra Commander something. I love that he has this vision, and I love that the vision itself is trippy, and that it does feel like it's otherworldly. And when the movie is released, we also understand why the vision is otherworldly as well. Uh, leading up to his dream, we see his um, the lab uh, slash bedroom, and a lot of his reading seems to be uh, fairly arcane. Like he seems to be very interested in the paranormal side of the world, uh, the occult. Um, if you look a lot of at a lot of the stuff that he's got up there, it's it's all um, talismans and and sort of magical circles and Stuff like that, and I love that. It kind of makes Mindbender seem evil. And I don't mean like evil, like, oh, he wants to take over the world. I mean like evil, like he's a like he's a hobby Satanist kind of, or hobbyist Satanist, or hobbyist occultist. Or, he's uh, definitely an important voice in the room. He does bring that like Nazi SS occult, you know, vibe to it. Like maybe totally. the Hydra type stuff. 
He's like Baron von Sausage, man. The marriage of science and superstition. We get into the master plan and how they try to have this uh, secret meeting, which is obviously spied on by Cobra Commander with his bug. Who then decides to destroy the wall by blowing it up, but standing Beautiful, right, because Cobra Commander. right in the explosion. He's standing right in the explosion. Bam, yeah. and he's there with the Crimson Guardsman. Oh, he's fabulous, man. He's just like <laughs> magic smoke. Pyrotechnics. Explosion. The jazz hands. <laughs> and then we are introduced to something that is super sexy. And I'm sure you guys all agree with me on this, except for Cujo. He might hate it, but... The Night Betrayal? Raven. Oh, the Night Raven. The Night Raven. I mean... I think you're glossing got... something, though. How the mm-hmm. hell did Cobra Commander get turned on so damn quickly? <laughs> he pitches up at Destro and Mindbender in the twins' secret meeting with an armed guard of Crimson Guardsmen and Scrap Iron just thrown into the mix, because why not give him a moment to shine as... Cobra's stooge to the end. And what happens? How the hell do they turn on their master? Why do they turn on their master? What's going on? Uh, my understanding is that uh, the conspiracy runs quite deep within the Cobra Cadre. And I think that uh, Mindbender has... I think when we see Mindbender's meeting with Destro and some of the other guys, it's supposed to infer that Vipers and Crimson Guardsmen and whatever are already in league. Like, he's already got them under his thumb. He's like, kind of, he's like, he's got that power base now, and now he feels that he's got this behind him. Now he can have this conversation. I know you what know? Kucho's going to say. Do you now? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I don't know which direction you're leading me, brother. I have a sneaking suspicion that um, it involves seeing double. Oh, I, I don't know about that. But I do, I do have a bit to say about Cobra Commander. I mean, obviously, uh, the writers know what Cobra Commander's capable of. He's got uh, surveillance for days. And I do think Scrap Iron is the MVP in this this episode because he's kind of a strange character, which I'm sure we'll get into on, on another bitch. day. No, no, I don't see that. I don't see that. But the direction I was leading you in was, I mean, the Crimson Guardsmen are loyal to Tomex and Zaymod because they cut the checks. Yeah, oh, that's but... I think anybody that's probably been in a room when it turns, they can probably be sympathetic to to the, to the Crimson Guard because it, Cobra Commander he comes in, he's full of fire, and then he reads the room real quick and he's like, "Okay, I can be the man behind the man and be the puppet," which is exactly who Cobra Commander is. So he's still in his element, and I like how he's like, "Somebody fix this wall." That's great. <laughs> that is a nice touch. <laughs> That's also the first example of um, how, with the animation, the characters shrink off the screen. If yeah, they scale. kind of like walk off, they scale off. They do use that often in this miniseries. In the next episode, there's a sequence with um, Sergeant Slaughter um, where they're running away as well, but they kind of shrink off screen. There's some sketchy animation going on. Yeah, but it's it's cool new techniques. It's stuff that had only really been seen in a lot of the anime-esque offerings in cartoons like Voltron, etc., etc. It hadn't really been done a lot. I mean, uh, Masters of the Universe uh, hadn't really done it because of how they did the animation technique. It's all rotoscoping. I want to say very scared of, but I think to save time and to get ep- as many episodes out as they did, they try to avoid complicated challenges like that. Just something else as well. I mean, you guys don't think Scrap Iron's a bitch? You don't think that he's, like, a sniveling little shit, like, at all? Can I make it personal for just a minute? I, I do have thoughts about Scrap Iron, but 
the character's a little more endeared to me because, like, I was on vacation. Steven, you just watched True Detective, but, like, we stopped in this mountain town, like, and I was just in the thrift store. And you know when, like, you feel eyeballs on you? Like, you're in Carcosa? Like, I felt like that. And I was, like, and, and I was just kind of looking around, but I was, like, there's eyeballs on me from, like, behind the wall right now. So I, I picked up, there was this scrap iron that was broken in half. And I was, like, how much for this, uh, this, this uh, G.I. Joe figure? And the guy was like studying me and I was like, guys, we need to get out of here. It was a weird place. But like, I remember I bought that. I still have that half a scrap iron. Wow. So he survived that place. I don't see him. He He's kind of, if I read his card right, he's he, he's repelled by randomness. He's obsessed with uh, perfection, right? I've got an interesting personal story to tell about scrap iron as well. Please do it. I never ever purchased the figure, but it found its way into, well, Rob's collection, essentially, but I mean, it, it came in a box that I'd ordered, and I sort of said, well, this is a bonus, um, you have him, because the seller just erroneously put a scrap iron figure into the package and shipped it off to us. Like, we never sought yeah. it out. He found his way to us. <laughs> found us. By some... I mean, I suppose you could call it the seller's generosity, but why did he want to get rid of the figure in the first place? Well, at least color contrast, color contrast wise, he's kind of a headache. Would you agree with that, Paul? The red and blue uh, motif, I, uh, dude, it doesn't bug me too much. I, I got to say it, it's kind of but in, in that in that fashion, in that fashion, like where it looks like he's got like a, a form fitting catcher's gear or something, or like a you know a tactical vest. It didn't. It didn't feel right with the, the design aesthetic. But I guess he is kind of a handyman. You know, I don't know. Guys, now that you mentioned... invented the bats. Well, you yeah. see, we're not sure. Because it kind of seems like like Cobra Commander did or that Destro did. And that he's just doing the final touch-ups. But then again, I, I might have missed something when I was watching the episode. Maybe we could credit the bats to him. Possibly. Well, well he, he seems did. to be the, the kind of technological dude. Because, I mean... Now the scrap iron's in a Cobra Commander's life. He has bats, and he has tiny little, um, you know, bug. technological fly cameras, bug cameras. Uh, he seems Literally, to be the yeah. tech dude now. The room is bugged. <laughs> the room is bugged. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, that's what you mentioned, scrap iron. Uh, I also have never bought a scrap iron figure, yet I have two. I know that Steve <laughs> gave me one. Um, yeah, Steve was up when he sort of came, I think it was the first or the second time that you were up here, Steve. You gave me a um I oh, I keep forgetting the name. It's that cool Snake little Snake Tracks uh, ATV. Snake which Tracks is ATV. And the Rise of Cobra me, version of the ferret. Mm-hmm. And and you gave me a scrap iron, and that's how I have a scrap iron. And I mean, I'm I'm actually happy that I've got him. But I, it's also a figure I've never sought out, but it's in my collection. So, hmm, the GI Joe book scrap iron conspiracy. Do 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 do. Did you walk out with that scrap iron half, Kujo? Yeah, no, I got it. It's actually in decent shape. It just the rubber band must have busted. But that that story is 100 percent like when I walked in that place, there was a bunch of sketchy folk just kind of like doing triangles around me. Yeah, that, that was that was interesting. Hmm. Back to part yeah. one of Arise, Serpent, or Arise. <laughs> the Joes shoot down a night raven and intercept a cobra message pod containing a bar of gold and instructions to Zartan to recruit some more Dreadnoughts for a very special mission. Sergeant Slaughter decides to take 
beachhead and lowlights to go check out the auditions. And Slipstream gives us one of the most beautiful lines in this five-part miniseries, one of many great lines, exclaiming that if he doesn't do something, he's going to be the filling in a missile sandwich. <laughs> Friedman. Paul, yes. Paul, Paul. Oh, dear. <laughs> missile no, sandwich. Yeah, we we got to realize whose pen is on the paper. This is Ron Friedman, dude. He's not in the trenches, dude. This guy's in Hollywood. You know he's playing words. You know. And you know this shit gets better as we get uh, higher in the numbers with these episodes because oh my word, there are some gems, and that is uh, where I'm gonna fire off my quick fire topic. I want listeners to think about this and you guys to think about this and not give me your answer. We're gonna conclude this quick fire topic at the end of the five part five parter that is uh, Arise of Pinto Arise. And I would like you guys to comment on what is your favorite bit of Mindbender's wisdom? Just to give you some ideas of what's on the table already. Mindbender tells us that mercy is the hallmark of greatness. Uh, He remarks on the double spiral of life. DNA. Yes. And, okay, this is a little bit of a spoiler for episode two. But another part of his wisdom that it's important to watch for booby traps. Okay, and these get better and better as they get through the line. So what I want you gentlemen to do is obviously find your favorite line, and we will discuss it ad nauseum uh, as we conclude this miniseries together. A new section, <laughs> quotable quotes. <laughs> Does anyone have anything they want to mention about the Dreadnought audition process? I love it. I really it. enjoyed this. I think <laughs> it makes so much sense. Like, to me, that is it. Like, they nailed it right there. That's how the Dreadnoughts recruit. <laughs> Here's a knife. Here's some blindfolds. Knock yourself the fuck out. <laughs> you kind of thing. G.I. Joe Wikia points out uh, an interesting logic slip. When Zartan is explaining that there is only one rule, whoever left standing will be the new Dreadnought. <laughs> the error in logic comes when Monkey Wrench wins the audition by blowing up everyone else. Xandar accuses him of cheating. Uh, so were there rules? Or not? Huh. I mean, how can you cheat? There are no rules. It's the dreadnoughts. It's not supposed to make sense. Yeah, you yeah, like so cool about this. Thing. Cheating is winning if you're a dreadnought. That's the whole point. The more despicable you are, the more reason you have to be in the dreadnoughts. Xandar doesn't get that. Then clearly, Xandar is a little bit out of tune with his dreadnought brothers. Xandar accuses Monkey Wrench of cheating. One of the reasons I think Thrasher kind of gets the boot is that. Even though Thrasher has very much earned his place being a Dreadnought, I think he's a little too smart. And I think Zartan doesn't really approve of that. Like, he's kind of like, this guy's a little bit too devious. Like, I like my deviousness, like, with a low IQ. So, Monkey Wrench is in, but Thrasher is a bit, like, questionable because that kid's a little smart. You know, because if you think about what Thrasher does... He is. He's totally overconfident, but he's also smart because he also holds back and waits for them to take each other out. And he also knows how to play favorites. He's he's very he's very political. <laughs> anyway, I mean, like, I don't want to get into that too much. Thrasher is a cool character as far as the cartoon's concerned, and the Thunder Machine is a damn fine vehicle. Yeah, but he's, by overconfidence, uh, I mean, like, he's like he feels like he's already in there. Because as he pulls up with the Thunder Machine, it already has the Cobra insignia on it. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, no, he was like. There's no ways I'm not getting in this team. I'm going to brand my vehicle with the Cobra insignia. I have no choice but to take it. But, dude, if you're driving the Fender machine, you're not going to be in the gang. 
that's already the nicest ride in in the in the game. But if if you read his <laughs> file card, uh, it goes on that he's quite spoiled. And my joke with him is always that he's probably um, Harry Potter's uh, cousin, that uh, Dursley kid. Yeah, that, yeah Dudley. Dudley, Dursley. yeah. Uh, Dudley, Dudley Dursley, Dudley? yeah. Um, Dudley something. Dudley Dursley. Yes, Dudley. Dursley. Dursley. Yeah, Dudley? yeah. Dudley. Um, he's Adams? very much like Dudley. He's just like I see him has uh, in his youth as being this fat little fucker that is just completely spoiled and overmothered, and then. He he like grows up a little bit and gets some muscles and like runs around in gangs and everything and his mom thinks he's like the best thing in the whole world and then he's like I'm gonna join the dreadnoughts I'm gonna make this really cool car and they're just gonna love me because of my cool car because I have no fucking understanding of what it means to be hardcore but I'm just gonna make this cool car you know and be overconfident and my mom says it's cool so I'm gonna get in there you know are are, are we to the swamp chase at this point? Indeed, we are. The uh, the Joes show up, and um, uh, Zoran is about to burn away the commands that they're trying to come and pick up. Figure out God, what that, the hell they're so, doing. So poorly written. Um, <laughs> like, no, I actually no, I like I like the uh, I actually liked that scene where they were setting up the infiltration to the uh, the Dreadnoughts because they kind of give they hype up uh, Zorana and Xandar, right? They're like Zartan's not alone on this one. He's got family with him. A mission so important, Zartan's enlisted the aid of his brother and sister. <laughs> okay. To me, that that's cool because it steps up the game. And then, and then now. yeah. So then Slaughter's like, yeah, I got two guys right here. That 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 dialogue I liked, and I do like uh, Slaughter's voiceover. He he's got a real distinct voice. Um, yeah, that's a cool sequence when he um when he hawks like any volunteers. And Slaughter's like, yeah, three right here. Me, he, him, and that guy. He, 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 just bl- <laughs> he just blind picks over his shoulder. It's beauty. Um, but I thought that when I was watching that, not the end of it, but the scene where the Thunder Machine is chasing people through that mud, like, I really like that scene uh, design-wise. I think live action, that would be a killer thing to, to look at. Like a car chasing people through a bunch of uh, thickets and stuff. We're left with the Joes about to be gunned down. And we're wondering how they're going to get out of it. Spoilers, it's a giant grenade. <laughs> it's a giant grenade. It's a giant grenade. And that's how part one of Arise, Serpentor Arise, finishes up. So, guys, highs and lows of the episode? I think, personally, for me, I, I, I'm going to take it to Scrap Iron. Like, I, I didn't really think much of the character. I thought about him aesthetically because of the story I told. But, like... Just him as a character. I looked up his specialties, kind of saw what he was about. I, I like a character who's obsessed with perfection, but has like a glassy and he's blind in one eye. I like that. Um, so he, he's he's more three-dimensional to me because of that first part. For me, uh, highlights have got to be Night Raven, Thunder Machine, Thrasher, Serana, Mindbender. Holy hell. So cool to have them in the show now. Uh, that gets me super excited uh, for what's coming on next. And the promise of visiting all of these strange and exotic locations. Yeah, that's something that gets me all excited in the show, the sort of promise of what's coming. But I really enjoyed the introduction of Mindbender. I enjoy having him in the show. He's He makes for a funny character. I've always you know, loved these Baron von Sausage thing. And all those vehicles. I mean, we, we get so many cool vehicles in the show, and we get to we, we get to see the Joes training a little bit, that kind of thing. That was great, like... 
the the major takeaways for me from this were even though the Joes was soft and and kind of being dumb, I really liked having them train up again. You know, this whole like unified kind of Joes training, and then they're running and there's rain and all that kind of madness. Incidentally, and, Lifeline is holding a rifle, running in the rain. Exactly, Sergeant Slaughter doesn't take his pacifist vegan shit. <laughs> <laughs> but I I really enjoyed a lot of that, and there's so many things I want to take from it. I mean, even the Dreadnought initiation, which has become my vision of of the dread dreadnought initiation those are some of the major highs the stuff i'm not mentioning is stuff that i don't really care much about my point weirdly enough is actually the dreadnought initiation you know coming from a guy who who, who constantly poo-poos on the dreadnoughts all the time um it was fun (laughs) it really does bring across their characters and and the i suppose the philosophy of the dreadnoughts and the way that they think about stuff it feels true the way that I understand the dreadnoughts, and I thought that was awesome. Hmm. And really put the spotlights on the two new members because they both used rather duplicitous means to secure their place. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Monkey Wrench's feature they should have had his like dick fall off because Monkey Wrench the figurine. I don't think I've seen one with his crotch intact. <laughs> okay, and to try and find an intact Monkey Wrench crotch online, yes, type that into Google. Okay, is quite difficult to do if you don't want to spend a lot of money. That kind of stuff <laughs> puts that you out on no buy lists. And Lifeline's got <laughs> the same problem, by the way. Second that. My high points, I think I addressed at the beginning of the episode, it's just the fact that everything that happens in this episode, save for the foldable <laughs> school bus shells, you could play out with your 1986 action figures. It was a huge showcase of almost all the toys of that series, all in one. And, I mean, Paul, you you have a similar bit of praise for this episode, and that's the introduction of Zorana, Xandor, Sergeant Slaughter, the Triple T. I mean, we didn't speak about that. It's not a, a, a great vehicle, but it was in there, briefly, as was the Havoc, the Tomahawk, oh, doing very little, but... But it was in there. The Conquest. The Tomahawk is the vehicle that kind of chases the the Cobra stun assault team off into the sunset. It's like a lone Tomahawk, like, flying after them. Uh, I mean, it's all there. The X-30. And all the 1986 Joes, which, for me, mark a refocus of the line back on military specialties. You don't have a fireman in 1986's series. You don't have a, a chemical, biological, radiological trooper. You don't have a sailor. You, you don't have the more colorful specialties or non-specialties that G.I. Joe took on. You certainly don't have a guy running around barefoot uh, throwing ninja stars. That yeah. doesn't appear in 1986. You have three Marines. You've got Leatherneck, Mainframe, and Sergeant Slaughter. You've got a Ranger. An adequate replacement for Stalker, if there ever was one, in the form of Beachhead. You've got your, like, tech-savvy guys still packing machine guns. I talk about dial tone in that sense. You know, like, everyone's more geared toward being a combat unit first and foremost. And that was something that really spoke to me. I enjoy the 1986 characters. I know that Justin Bell of Generals Joe's, Justin Bell, General Hawk wasn't as warm towards the 1986 team because they seemed to constantly be at each other's throats. 
but I like the fact that they are they're less pally pally. Yes, exactly. They are more competitive. You know, yeah. the interplay. I'll take the interplay between Wetsuit and Leatherneck any day over the sort of the the Fall Guy and like Poindexter interplay between Alpine and Bazooka. Wetsuit and Leatherneck became characters that I grew to that I've grown to like because of the rivalry that they have in the cartoon and because it mirrors the sort of real life marine seal kind of uh playful rivalry that they have, you know? So I love that. And and I think it's so cute that they introduced a ranger, a marine, and a seal pretty much together. I thought that was really smart. Well, smart and funny and kind of a small nod. And yeah, uh, and and for me, a lot of my vintage figures are '86. Like, and so it's great. This I I can full heartedly relate to a lot of what's going on on screen because of my toy collection. Did you say yeah. full heartedly? Full heartedly. Full heartedly. Full full heartedly. Full heartedly. You said that this was all toy play sets. Where's the Mindbender bedroom play set? Where's that at? <laughs> mm. Just take it from your He-Man toys, man. It's not going to have that snake. It's not going to have that snake. Any oddities that you guys might have noticed in episode one, just in closing? Oh, gosh. Too many to mention. I mean, animation errors are rife, but they always will be. Leatherneck has white gloves in his establishing shot in the uh, the opening sequence. <laughs> What's up with that? I thought they did a good job animating <laughs> Ran those, out of skin uh, paint. Strato Vipers. That's what they are, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, those guys are tough to draw. They got a lot of uh, details. So they did a good job on those guys. Two little niche things that I picked up. One is when the Joes are sparring, Flint gets quite a good smack to the face, and there's actually a little bit of blood. It's there for like a whole frame. If you guys look carefully, you will see it, especially if you watch it on a on a TV screen and not on something like YouTube. You'll actually see um, there's a, a split-second frame of blood that has actually just come out of his mouth. It's not Mortal Kombat blood. It's two or three drops that are in the air. It's not it's a color mistake. Are you sure? Not yeah, it's Flint. He gets smashed. He gets smashed across the face. I'm not sure by who, but um, I actually double checked it. Yeah, it's actually very interesting to see that. It's not. It's not something I see often in Joe's. I, you don't often see blood in any Sunbow cartoon. This is going to be in episode two. But the Raven functions the way the Raven should. Um, of course, talking about the Night Raven, it's cool that it has no forward firing guns and it's only the drone that fires forward, uh, which I thought was a really good nod. And I, I, I thought that. Them trying to be accurate with the Raven is cool. Uh, when the Raven goes down, obviously the ejector seat, the canopy pops off upwards, and the uh, two uh, Strider Vipers float down to safety. And sorry, the third thing, anybody catch Mainframe's reference to Nam? Yeah, he mentioned it while they're playing video games. It's kind of a cool thing when, when if you consider that talking about Nam was kind of taboo. I, I thought it was interesting that he mentions it. Uh, oh, you jogged my memory, brother. Talking about how to deal with the thousand-yard stare. How grown up is that? You bringing up that whole reference to Nam, like Friedman references Waco, Texas later. And Mm. I don't know if you guys know about what went down in Waco over here. But I I think those are kind of like mental notes that Friedman's thrown out there. He's like, oh, you were unlucky to be born in Waco, Texas. And you're like, huh? So, yeah, he's name-dropping a little bit. Yeah, it's it's interesting Even when it's in error. But we'll yeah. get there. perhaps. Well, 
You should check where, where Iceberg's actual birthplace is. Hmm. It's just another, another little element of the file cards that Friedman decided not to read. Anyway, we'll get into that in part two. Um, low points, or we're wrapping it up. I've got a low point. The action in some places was handled rather clumsily. I think having the kind of the, the wagon circle, if you could call it that, with the stuns encircling the G.I. Joes, like, this is the G.I. Joe HQ. Is that the sum total of personnel that are able to repel the attack that are being encircled by those stuns? Is there no one inside the base? Where's Cross Country? I mean, last we saw him, he was messing around with his havoc. Why doesn't he use that and bring it into the assault? I mean, the action was running very, very distant second to the scene being a setup to Sergeant Slaughter saving the day. Unfortunately, like, the Joes were way too inept. Unreasonably so. There wasn't an adequate fight happening. Like, before you knew it, you had the key personnel all hunkered down with the stuns encircling them, all shooting inwards, which isn't a very clever way of conducting an assault. <laughs> let's, let's face the facts. I mean, you're going to be hitting... Yeah, you're going to be hitting your other guys on the other side. But anyway... So that was my low Well, point. that's just Friedman, you know, constantly hitting it over the head with how useless the G.I. Joes are at this point. Yeah, I mean... Do you uh, think that they, they are useless? They can't even think tactically properly. That whole situation is made even more disappointing by the fact that the Joes have so much cool new hardware that is introduced just in those early opening minutes, and so many cool characters are, are introduced to us in those opening minutes that it actually takes... Great characters like Low Light, Leatherneck, and Wetsuit, and and quickly devalues them uh, by making them as inept as it did. And it is a low point for me. It is very irritating to get through. And and that's honestly where my my disdain for this episode ends. It's it's pretty much it's just there. I just ugh. And like Rob said, you know you're being hit hit over the head by GI Joe's ineptitude, but it's kind of like wow, like, they had to use, like, a size 50 hammer to do it. You know, they couldn't have been more subtle, you know? So that's that's what irritates me there. There's a, there's a lack of class in how it's done. Yeah, that's my low point as as well, that the sort of over-justification for the introduction of Sergeant Slaughter. What do you guys think? Friedman, baby. Which leaves us with one more item to tend to before wrapping it up on episode 70, and that's star ratings. Out of five... Star ratings, or... Um, instead of a star rating, why don't we give it a... How much of a down payment would you pay Zartan for this episode in the gold bars? Oh! <laughs> Great. Well, I'm going to give this episode three gold bars in that case. Reason being, as far as opening episodes of miniseries go, it doesn't have the same set-piece allure that we've seen in The Revenge of Cobra or the further adventures of G.I. Joe. We don't have a huge onslaught. We don't have a huge um, battle sequence involving jets and tanks and planes and, you know, helicopters. Like, it's the, the action is far more subtle and focused. Like, we have a dogfight, but it's just one Joe vehicle, one Joe jet against one Cobra jet and the drone. And we have a ground battle, but it's stuns and... Battle Android Troopers and fist fights, effectively. We don't have this enormous, all-consuming, 
action set piece that we've seen or, or come to expect from mini series openers. So three out of five, I think, is a safe enough uh, halfway there kind of score for an episode that intrigues me because of the introduction of new characters, but has yet to reach those kind of highs of pitting them against massive mounting odds. I will go in at um, three bars of a hefty payment, a hefty down payment as well. My feelings are similar to Steven's in that I felt that there wasn't enough fanfare in this show. It was the excitement comes from being introduced or seeing characters like Low Light, Wetsuit, uh, Leatherneck, brought onto screen with Xandar Z- uh, and Sarana and Thrasher and the vehicles, which is kind of weird. Like, that's where the buzz is coming from for me in the show, uh, aside from what my high points are. It is missing something that the other miniseries had, even the bad ones. So I'm also going to give it a three down payment. I'll give it two and a half gold. Basically, I, I love the scripting. I mean, the action's all over the place. Oh, it just doesn't have enough cool in it. Like, you only see Snake Eyes maybe one or two frames. You need more than that. You need a little bit of Scarlet just to kind of keep everybody grounded. Because the new team team members do get a little bit of depth. You get a little bit of dissension from Beachhead. He's ambitious, whatever. But, yeah, there's not enough to kind of keep an identity. So, and that's kind of compounded by Friedman's usage of the characters and putting them in situations that don't always suit them. But I'm sure we'll get into that later. So, two and a half gold for me. The intro is so annoying, but like near the end, it gets so much better. But I'm actually, I'm only going to give it two. I liked it more than uh, Pyramid of Darkness, but I didn't like it as much as, say, um, Revenge of Cobra. Pyramid of Darkness even opens up better than this one does. <laughs> what? Pushing uh, space shuttles around? Gee whiz. I suppose the scale of that was hard to beat. It's grander. It's mm, definitely exactly. grander. Exactly. I'm working this out correctly, and um, we feel this about 2.6 uh, stars out of 5 overall. Sounds about right. What's the conversion rate on that? <laughs> oh, it's just divided by 4, so we add everything together divided by 4. And how does that compare to Revenge of Cobra and Pyramid of Darkness? Pyramid of Darkness, episode 1, we gave 2.125 overall, compared to Revenge of Cobra, which we gave 3.5 overall for the first episode. And this one stacks, basically, it's a little closer to Pyramid of Darkness... A little bit. Um, so 2.6. Squarely in the middle. But let's see if the new G.I. Joe roster can outdo its predecessors in the episodes to come. This has been episode 70 of G.I. Joburg, part one of Arise, Serpentor Arise. Tune in this time tomorrow for the next episode. Can't wait. (laughs) So long, everyone. And remember, it's important to watch for booby traps. (laughs) 